welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Welcome back to another Knock On Podcast. It's an early morning podcast for me. Uh, Yeah, 3.30 on the alarm clock there. But uh, this should still be a good one. It'll take my voice a while to wake up, so I'll be a little froggy for a little bit. And uh, my brain's a little foggy too, um, for no reason other than the fact I haven't slept worth a dang for the last few nights. Not really sure why. I think it's I think it's just too much going on in my mind. I wake up and as soon as I open my eyes, I'm literally thinking about something that I need to have done before hunting season comes. Because once hunting season comes, for me, uh things don't really get done as much. That's kind of my time to be time to be me. And I just I just disconnect and it's, well, it's probably good. It's a few, it's a three months a year that I just tell people I can't do it. And maybe I should do that more often. I probably should do that six months a year. And then I'd be able to sleep past three thirty in the morning without having some weird thought pop in my head about something that's going on. But I guess uh, this podcast is going to be dedicated hundred percent to uh you guys the knock on nation i've got about a dozen uh quick q a's here that i want to go through uh, then really they're just next in line so i just took four screenshots um of the questions as they tallied um in that post that i made a few days ago so and this is um really what i want moving forward is questions and answers direct from people that are up to date with what's going on with with everything that we're doing and all that good stat all that good stuff so uh it's august 1st 2017 depending on when you're listening to this uh, a few things that i do want to say it's going to be a cool i'm pumped because it's august 1st it's now the t- clock is 100% ticking in the right direction for hunting season. And my hunts start each and every year in Alberta. They always do and probably always will because that place is amazing. I've got so many stories um, from there that I really can't even begin to tell you how many how many awesome adventures I've had there, how many, uh, how many friendships I've formed there, all kinds of stuff. So, you know, that's, that's probably one of the most exciting trips for me in the entire year. I look forward to it. Um, I seriously look forward to it and man, I can't, I can't say enough about how that all plays out up there. They've got probably, arguably, the best bow hunting mecca anywhere in the world. Um, I don't know if it is the best, but it's probably one of the best places that you could go because 
Alberta's got a little bit of everything. They've got elk, they've got mule deer, whitetails, antelope. I know they've got bighorns, they've got moose, uh, bears. They definitely have grizzlies, even though uh, you can't really hunt them yet. But uh, and I've, I think that might be changing, but I, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, there's there's so much stuff up there. It's just. I had to make a post already this morning because as soon as I woke up and looked at my phone and realized it was August 1st, I was like, oh yeah, 24 days, 24 days left and I'm going to be bow hunting. So the clock's ticking. It's like, no, that's hardly any time at all. Um, there's a couple little things I'm actually going to be, uh, I'm actually going to be heading out um, to taking little dud and Sharon to, uh, chase some wild hogs, um, down in Oklahoma. Um, I'm going to be doing quite a bit of stuff from there. I'll be doing quite a few product reviews. And part of the reason why I wanted to, uh, do this lease was, you know, not only to do it with some of my good friends, um, I did do a new lease down there, which is the first lease I've ever done. I'm 40 one I think I think I'm 41 and I've never like been part of a lease or part of a really of a hunting camp so to speak so um this is a new one for me but it's really cool because it's a great place place that um Eric my buddy Eric Gudgel who you've all seen many many times and he's he's shot some awesome deer um shot an awesome buck opening day down there last year um, he's, he was, you know, the good guy on this whole deal and got me to come down and I fell in love with the place and ended up leasing it. But I really want to, um, not only have it as a place to document, um, I really want to have it as a place to document, um, this new deer supplement that I've been talking about, um, the animal or, uh, Garland Animal Wellness and it's just a really, really cool brand. And EJ, who you've heard, and Preston, um, who's EJ's partner in this, um, and Preston, you'll you'll see me and Preston some later in the year. He's super, super cool. Um, but we just really, we really want to let people know the science behind all this because I love small companies that are doing things that aren't in the main light. And you know they're they're putting they're putting their company money towards product development and making the company a better product and really focusing on a small niche market um, that doesn't want to see quality suffer. They don't want to see quality go down the tubes. And that's I mean it's really the same with what I'm doing. Um, the amount of people, the amount of dealers and stuff I've had call and ask if I would, if I'd sell them, you know, releases or rests, uh, is really high, but honestly, I don't want to get to the point where production is so backordered that the production starts to go down, um, or the quality starts to go down and, you know, and then it starts to suffer. So it's a really fine line between having something cool, being able to keep up with supply and demand, and then not lose you know, the real backbone of your company. But anyway, 
um, down in Oklahoma, I'm doing a lot of documentation with them um, and research on different products and how, how the animals respond. And there's a really, really cool product um, that we're actually going to, uh, Preston's going to meet us down there as well. And it's a new product coming. I'll be able to talk about it. And it's a product that we've been feeding. And it, if the deer are eating it, um, it actually completely, uh, well, I shouldn't say completely, but on the ones we've done, it dramatically reduces the amount of, of blood-sucking insects um, that attach to them, whether that be ticks, uh, mosquitoes, flies, uh, all that stuff. And there's been a lot of different th ways to put that in um, through... You know, people have tried to put it into like livestock, but a lot of times it's not something that they consume. Um, but we've actually um, found through a lot of hard work with EJ, found um, an actual natural element that they do eat and they do consume. Uh, and there's been, we've had a few, uh, we've actually had a few deer farmers. Uh, just implement the product and they've told us that literally the deer in their fences are there's no more ticks on them uh, so this is a huge huge deal this is a major deal especially you know people you're in areas where um, well I mean look at look at um, Jim Miller right now he's doing so much for Lyme disease because Jim has Lyme disease and suffers through Lyme disease and honestly, it's super easy just to get a tick bite from, you know, honestly, I probably get bit by ticks more um, from when I'm field dressing them, you know, when they're all covered up, especially like underneath them, between their legs and around their ears. Um, you know, there's, there's deer that I've had years here in Iowa where it's just been absolutely um, devastating how many ticks are on these animals and you look at the bases of their horns and wherever where the flies and you know and mosquitoes have been eating them you know biting them so much they're just gnarly there and all that stuff takes away from from horn growth and it also takes away from health on the doe's side if the doe is trying to keep up with nursing especially if she has twins or or triplets uh, which you know healthy does will you know, it starts to really draw too much from them and they start to get to the point where you see that, you know, you can see a lot of their ribs and things like that. So anyway, I'm doing some research there and then also it's a very cool place um, where I can build a um, very technical field round um, because one of the elements for the shot of the week, uh, which is a really cool series, is going to be um, the, really the field rounds, because the field rounds are where I'm going to be able to show you some of the technical aspects of cuts and how I try to, how I try to learn those cuts, um, and things that I look at while I'm in a tournament situation that can help me problem solve. You know, I'm literally problem solving when I'm at a field tournament, because, you know, you have to do a lot of prep and practice uh, beforehand to try to learn those angles. But then once you're in the event, you can't just take out an inclinometer 
and figure out what your degree of rise is and things like that. So I kind of try to show you some quote unquote cheats, um, you know, within the rules, I guess. Um, at least I thought they were within the rules. Uh, I want to be able to show you some of that so that I can help you guys, um, you know, learn some of those different those different cheats. But that's going to be the place for that. Um, also, a lot of the shout of the weeks are going to come from while I'm on my adventures. So we've got two shots of the week that I, that we've already edited down that are from um, the BC trip that I did um, up with uh, Chicolton River Outfitters. And I was up there with Dusty. And we kind of went through two very prominent shots that I've had to make on bears at different times. Um, so we talked about how literally how I address those shots, how I make those shots happen, and also talked about real scenarios of how, you know, we all, I almost want to go through for the shot of the week um, or for one element of the shot of the week and reenact some of these hunts to where I can actually just talk about what happened with that shot, what went through my mind, um, because there's one of the questions that is actually on my phone um, is relative to, you know, how do I actually do my normal shot routine time-wise um, when it comes to uh, being able to, you know, being able to remember exactly um, how to execute that shot and go through your shot sequence and do everything with the right timing without really without running out of time or holding too long. Um, and so I've got a, you know, that's a great shot of the week tip um, or a great, great shot of the week topic is to be able to go through that. And um, well, I mean, I've had to make some, some miraculous shots over my hunting career and you know I almost want to go back and recreate some of those shots some of the shots that you have seen um in those first seasons because you know a lot of it, really watching it on TV there's honestly there's been a few things I've been deceptive about one of the things was um just as a just as I you know kind of a a public figure for archery, um, you know, it gets tough because there's there's really two things that I have to juggle. One thing that I have to juggle is I have to juggle um, whether or not I show shots that are real scenario shots, which is actually a big reason why I wanted to be able to go to... Um, I wanted to be able to go direct to my audience and not have this huge, thick file uh, of what I can and can't show for shots, or you know, I can't slow show motion, slow motion more than one time, um, or you know, certain shot angles. But the reality is, you know, there's there's really solid argument for frontal shots. Um, and I know a lot of there's going to be a lot of people in hunters education or teachers from hunters ed that are going to be really pissed about that. But honestly, I've shot several different species from the ground 
directly, you know, directly head on. But there's a few things there. Those shots have also been shots that are um, very close. I'm spot and stock. I'm on the ground. I'm level on a shooting plane, so I'm not shooting down from an angle to where, you know, trying to shoot down on an angle through a brisket, uh, you're more likely to shoot them through like the neck or something like that versus when you're on the ground, you have a full view of that front cavity and um, some of the most instantaneous um, archery shots um, in a hunting situation that I've made um, from shot to you know, animal being totally expired has been that frontal shot, but it is debatable. And it's something that, you know, on TV, I don't have, I don't have the ability to show it and have a direct correlation with the audience to where I can talk through that or maybe talk why I did do that or why I didn't do that. Um, so, you know, this new platform I'm hoping is going to allow me to, you know, be able to explain some of those things. And I think part of the shot of the week should be reenacting some of the previous um, hunting scenarios that I've had and also reenacting um, some of the some of the future ones, you know, ones that haven't happened yet. But, um, you know, going back, one thing that I can say I really, really want um i really want to bring some light to is how i hunt that early season in alberta because this isn't a this alberta is an is an awesome spot and it's probably it's arguably the one place i've had the most success with over i guess um you know the, i can't even think how long i've been hunting there um but I've been hunting there a long time and on my best years, I've shot three species on my, on my six day hunt. Um, I've never come home with nothing. And, you know, I've had, I've had a lot of, I've had so many opportunities that, that haven't panned out and it's actually most of it or yeah, I guess all of it's been my fault. Because there, you know, I've I learned a lot up there. One because it's the first hunt of the fall, so I'm not on point either. I'm I'm kind of um, I'm kind of not really awake yet, totally in what I'm doing. So I think I make mistakes there. There's been years um, where this is this is actually a really good topic. There's been years where I've gone there and I wasn't prepared i literally had a bow that was kind of sitting at the house i'd done some hog hunting with it um in the summertime you know maybe shot at some in the backyard but i had a lot more focus on target archery didn't really put focus to my hunting equipment let time get away from me and then just threw it threw my bow in the case and went and um i really paid the price for that one year i had you know i went there i was wasn't really on point. I wasn't on my game. And, uh, the very first day, uh, we, Todd, uh, got me on a really, really big mule deer. And, uh, we did a stock. 
the deer ended up feeding out the back end of this big field and he was heading into this river bottom. Um, so we actually backed out of this, this uh, standing wheat field, probably, probably ran or jogged at least a good mile uh, to get back to where we had the vehicle. And then we had to drive about four miles square around and park the vehicle on the gravel again, ran back through this huge section of crop, um, probably covered another mile, mile and a half at a very fast pace, went into this river bottom and literally went into this river bottom, dived down, went back up, went down the next ridge. And as we went down the next ridge uh, and started to go back up the second uh, creek bed, I'll be danged if, and I, I mean, this was just sheer luck because you'd have to know this whole area up there, the Peace River type area, um, with all the different, with all the different, uh, little rivers, little smoky and the Paswaska and stuff like that. Um, but we literally came up and I could see the rack coming straight to me and this, you know, Todd just grabbed me and pulled me to the side and this mule deer was probably at about eight or nine yards and it was 190 to a 200 inch mule deer non-typical points going all over the place just a huge giant buck and I missed the buck I literally missed the buck at like less than 20 yards and he looked at me like, what in the heck are you doing? <laughs> like he was, he was not happy because, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely work, but mentally I was not even like there yet. And all of a sudden now we're already doing these two and a half to three mile, uh, you know, spurts and runs to get there. So, uh, you know, physically I wasn't ready. Mentally I wasn't ready. Honestly, I got there, put my bow together, didn't shoot it. Um, you know, we kind of went, I've, I posted about that, posted a picture about this the other day. You know, you get to camp and I didn't fly in the day before camp started. That was another mistake that I remember now. I actually wanted to save the 200 bucks for the cost of the airfare and I flew in the morning of opening season. So Todd was like, dude, we got to go. So as soon as I got to camp, we just threw stuff on and went and I'll be danged if it wasn't the biggest mule deer. Um, you know, it would definitely have rivaled my double dropper that I shot up there. So anyway, uh, that was the first day. Well, then the second day we go out, it starts raining, uh, if anyone has ever been up in Alberta and had rain before uh, up on those roads, it turns to pure gumbo mud. And on a lot of those roads that aren't maintenanced, you just can't drive down them. So if it's raining really hard, you you know, just to preserve the farmer's roads, because even though a lot of the ground we hunt is actually crown land, um, which, you know, I'm happy when I shoot almost every elk I've ever shot there has been on crown land. So it's almost like a public land bull, but you do have to have an outfitter to get the tag, um, which actually, uh, Red Willow Outfitters, they just called me and, um, they had 
two people back out on um, on a hunt that they were supposed to be there the same week as I was there. Um, so they've actually they're gonna they're gonna try to fill those slots last minute. So if any of you want to go to Alberta, they've got uh, you really have your choice. You pretty much pay to be in that camp for the six days that you're there. Um, and the accommodations are great. The family couldn't be any better. I can tell you that the family's great. Um, you, you eat well. I don't eat as good as a, what a lot of the hunters do because I'm I rarely come back into camp unless I'm having to get something out of the heat to cut it up. Um, but you know, camp is awesome, and then you have to you really your decision is you know it's almost like an a la carte because since the outfitters control all the tags in that whole area, uh, you have to know or make a decision of what tag you want in your pocket. I always get four. Um, I always, well, actually get more than that. I always get five because I buy a wolf tag always, uh, which has come in, come in handy a couple times. Um, but yeah, having, you know, wolf tag, I get a muley tag, I get a elk tag, um, then I get a white tail tag and I'll get a bear tag, um, because you can shoot literally you're up there hunting this country that has potentially anything. And, you know, you could be still hunting a, a herd of elk that you're hearing and you're down in these river bottoms that are, that just have a plethora of animals. So, you know, you, you buy the tags in addition, you know, your main your main expenditure is the hunt, and then you actually buy, um, you know, the individual tags. So you might pay, you know, five hundred bucks to have the whitetail tag, or you know, five hundred bucks to have a bear tag. But for me, I go there and I want I want to have everything. I normally go um, for almost a hunt and a half. Uh, Dusty and Jeremy always come come up with me. Um, they guide for Todd as well. So um, for these first hunts, so it's pretty cool. But um, so on the second day, it rained, and we had to you know park the truck only on the main roads, and then we would you know we're glass you glass so many big, huge, massive fields. The positive part to the rain is the farmers won't be combining, um, and that's a big deal up there. Is the crops when season starts? That's when crops start coming out. So how that place looks the first day of camp versus the last day of camp is completely different. You might have ten miles of crop that was standing canola with bachelor groups out there, and or herds of elk and standing peas, and then the next day you go out and as soon as the sun comes up, you realize that uh, 20 combines were out there at midnight and freaking wiped out the whole field. So then you're having to relocate, you know, relocate maybe that, that basher group that you were on. Um, so it's pretty cool. It's a fun hunt, but you cover a lot of ground. Um, on, on the second day though, it rained. And when it rains, like I said, you, you're trying to cover that ground so we'd park the car and we would run down these sections. You know, we'd kind of try to t try to jog at as good of a pace you can, get to the end, glass the fields really good, 
you know, maybe climb a tree, glass really good. And then, um, then after that, we would back out, go to the next, you know, go down a section or two sections and glass, glass that same thing. Well, we ended up finding a giant muley out in this, uh, wheat field and the wheat was probably only about four feet high. His rack was probably about three feet over the top of that. And the, the wheat, the way it grew, it was literally almost level with the top of his eyeball when he was bedded in there. So we had to stay really low. And the only way we could come at him was from this piece of timber that was almost a mile away to keep the wind right. So we, uh, we went about a mile away and got on our bellies and started crawling. And I mean, it was sheeting down, just sheets, just. And we're crawling and I'd peek up and I could just see the tip of that velvet keep, keep low. We'd keep going. And I mean, I'm trying to like keep, uh, you know, and this is important too. In my, in my rain suit on my inside pocket, I always have a Ziploc bag. In that Ziploc bag, I always have a piece of a chamois. Um, and because a chamois is really important because you can wring it out and then wipe your gear down with it. And it'll soak up that water. And the plastic bag, I put my release in it. When it's really coming down like that, you need to try to keep your release dry. So I put my release in there and... We're crawling, crawling. There's mud between my fingers. There's, you know, I'm trying to get the mud out of my cam and my pins and axles and everything else. We crawl in and I get, we get 50 yards and I couldn't, I just couldn't get a shot. I tried standing up. I could see, you know, as he's facing away, I couldn't see him. So I went back down and the rain was just coming down hard. So then, uh, went a little closer, went a little closer. Next thing I know, I'm, I'm at 30 yards and, you know, he's saying you got to shoot. The wind was getting swirly. I mean, this was, this took a few hours to get to this point. So this was another pretty dynamite stock. And he ends up saying, um, he kind of holds up his little cow call and just thinks because there is elk up there and the elk are within those fields a lot with the muleys sometimes just a little calf call um, can get a muley to look so todd kind of half mooned around so that when he called the buck would stand up and be looking in the direction where he was instead of looking you know through me to look at where the call came from and he made a few calls i was already at full draw I seen the butt of that muley come up and then the body raised up and I freaking missed again at 30 yards. And that time out of the field, Todd was so mad. And granted, he probably doesn't get that way with most of his clients. You know, you got to realize Todd and I have hunted together probably 10, 15 years. So he was, he was talking to me like he, would talk to his one of his you know one of his family he was he was being open about it and when we got back to the vehicle i said man that was a good muley let's see if we can maybe find out where he went to because he just started running across miles of open field 
And Todd said, we're going back to camp. He's like, I don't think he can shoot anymore. <laughs> so we went back to camp and he made me just shoot. And I took the whole, I took that whole day and I deserved it. Uh, I took the rest of that day and just shot my bow. I dried my clothes off. I took my gear, laid all my gear out, packed all my gear the right way. And, uh, I think that's what people should do. And, you know, I think you have to go to camp. You have to be prepared early. You got to be ready to go. And that was one thing that I wasn't, I wasn't ready and I paid the price for it. So I don't know. I think, I think the moral of the story is once it hits August from now on, I've learned my lesson. Um, as much as, as much fun as I'm having shooting my target bow right now, I really need to probably put that down. Uh, I'm gonna, this is a great time of year, super important time, um, for you to take your bow, get it maintenanced. If you're, if you feel like you need a new string, if you feel like your cams are out of time, if you're wanting a new arrow rest, if you're wanting a new sight, like any of that crap. If you need, if you only have a few arrows left and you need to get another dozen arrows before hunting season, do it now. Beginning of August, do it. You know, one, you're going to probably get it done much faster if you go to an archery shop because they're going to actually be able to have some time to work on it. And they're probably going to, because they have the time, they're probably going to do a better job. But uh, yeah, I've got to do that same stuff. Um, I did, I'm doing a lot of my friends bows right now. This is one thing that consumes a lot of time for me is, you know, I'm trying a lot of my friends that are especially friends I care about. Um, I'm trying to talk them into, Hey dude, get me your bow. Let me go through it. Let me make sure it's, it's good. And I want to make sure their bow is a hundred percent, you know, on point for them too. So, um, you know, we need to, we need to think about that as hunters and also from a fitness point of view, you got to be thinking about it too. Um, you know, riding, riding my bike did more for me, uh, than running did from, for elk hunting. Um, if you, you know, my fat tire bike is not easy to pedal down the road. Um, it's an e-assist bike. Um, which I don't use all the time. There's certainly times on hit some hills and stuff that are really, really um, steep that I'll use it. But I try to, or on my, you know, I normally ride to the gym on my bike and then I ride back on my bike. And when I do, a lot of times on the way back, I try to do it for a little bit more cardio. So I'll try to do it for a little bit more speed. And in that case, I will have the e-assist on because... The e-assist kicks in anytime you're going less than 17 miles an hour. So, you know, if I'm sitting there pedaling at 20 to 25 miles an hour on this fat tire bike and then hit like a big incline, as long as I'm cranking the pedals, when my speed slows down to 17, it'll at least keep me going 17 miles an hour if I'm pedaling hard enough. So, um, you know, I really like that. You know, I think right now... It, we're still three weeks out from season, four weeks for some people, but uh, you got to get after it. And the other thing too, um, as I'm talking right now, 
there's a lot of people watching live um, as well on Instagram, and several of them are saying that they're at the gym and they're having their morning workout, and that's awesome because, you know, part of being a hunter is not just knowing how to shoot. It's not just saying I'm in shape to be able to chase elk if I need to. Um, you have to start getting yourself, you know, and this kind of falls back to what I was you know, talking about when I made the mistakes at Todd's, I wasn't waking up an hour before daylight. You know, I wasn't, it was the end of August. I was probably, I remember that year. It was the year that we, um, that we moved here to Iowa. So I had gone through, um, moving a farm. I had gone through moving the house, getting Harry into a new school system. Uh, all that stuff, and uh, I think when you're not getting up before you normally do, it's really tough. It's like those first days of turkey season are pretty tough, especially especially after you've had like three turkey mornings in a row. Um, that's how it is at camp, too. A lot of people don't realize when you go to elk camp, it's not just that, you know, you can go out and you can do five miles a day and be fine um, when you're doing it in your own element. You know, if you're getting up, you're waking up at eight in the morning or seven in the morning, you know, you're having your breakfast, taking your dump, uh, doing all your stuff that you do in the morning, then go to work, you know, kind of have the day to um listen to some Joe Rogan and get all motivated and get pumped up and then go home and then do your run. I mean, that's great. That's a huge step. And that's, uh, that's, that's a, that's a big step, but in elk country, you don't only run at five o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, you might have to be busting your ass right now at, you know, four or five in the morning, uh, to try to get, to where you need to get for daylight. And um, I think that's one thing that people miss out on the most is they tr- they think of what do I need to get to have for elk? Well, I need to shoot. I need to be able to make a long shot. I need to, you know, spend a lot of time in the equipment. What equipment do I, ha- do I want to have? And this is relative to, to target archery. So one thing that I teach Um, with target archery or in my target archery seminars, um, especially when I talk, you know, I talk about having a complete package and I call it the trifecta. So I have a diagram that I've built that pretty much shows three elements that I think that are relative to being a top level competitive archer. I'm sure this is, this is, uh, relatable to anything, But the three elements are going to be the mental, the physical, and the technical. So uh, the technical is the aspect where, as I've taken surveys over the years, um, and what I normally do in that first day is I'll have people um, make a pie chart, uh, make a circle, and then I'll say, okay, within that circle, that's 100% of your time. So I'm like, how many of you, um, you know, how many of you uh, spend quite a bit of time, you know, making sure that you've got the right equipment, researching that equipment, um, you know, 
listening to some podcasts, uh, watching videos, watching commercials, reading the ads. How many of you are doing that? Um, so they'll start to make that pie chart and I'll go through and then I'll say, okay, how many, you know, okay, let's factor in, let's factor in hours you commit, you know, really think about this. How many hours are you really committing a hundred percent to something related to archery? So I said, when you, you know, when you're making this pie chart, really think about that. So if you're, if 10 hours a day, you're thinking about archery, you know, now on the chart, I want you to, you know, how much of that time have you put into to working out? So, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, I think about archery eight hours a day. And next thing you know, they start saying, well, okay, shit, I only, you know, I only, I only ran two miles really. So I guess I got like 20 minutes in. So then they start making these little pie slices. And then when you have, when you have it all done, the average pie slice has one major big pie piece and that's dedicated to it's really dedicated to the technical it's combined of two things it's combined of your bow and your shooting form but the problem is and the problem with any athlete is the majority and what you're good at isn't the problem when it comes to being competitive and as a hunter we're we could not possibly be in a more competitive environment we are in you know for the animal it's in a life or death situation if we were you know true cavemen it would potentially be a life or death situation too so those small slivers those are all little chinks in the armor that those represent vulnerability so the key is to get that pie to where the mental the physical and the technical are all balanced and uh, because what happens is if one falls short or if one is missing there's still two-thirds of that pie that are consumed by technical or mental or mental and physical or physical and technical and what i found is as long as two-thirds of those are firing um you know you have you have a very good opportunity to still be successful but when you have all those little gaps and and everything is falling back on just how you shoot um, or what equipment you have one the equipment you have probably doesn't really matter i mean i could kill I can go kill stuff with Harry and Sharon's bow any day of the week. I could go to a garage sale and buy a bow and I know I could go whack something with it. Like, you know, that's what we did. All that stuff that's at a garage sale, that's something that I've used to hunt with sometime in the last 20 years anyway, and it worked. So, you know, the physical aspect is a huge, huge gap and the mental aspect is the biggest of gaps when it comes to uh, competitive archers and competitive hunters. And one of those mental hurdles is being able to get your ass out of bed and being able to, to have your body woke up enough to where you can wake up, you can 
you know, put on some serious miles. You can get in front of an elk herd, get to the spot nowhere else has been, been the be the first one out of camp, be the last one back, go the whole day without freaking eating. Um, you know, one of the questions I have on the podcast or marked for the podcast, even though um, even though I haven't even gotten any of those questions yet. So hopefully I do. That was my initiative. Um, one of them was about supplementation, and someone asked specifically, you know, we know that we know that you really like the honest stuff, but you never really get super specific about it. And some of that stuff I should be better about. Um, you know, I don't. Sometimes I feel like the things. Sometimes I I feel like I don't want to. I don't want to just be talking about something that you can buy all the time. Um, but I can say I buy stuff all the time. I mean, I buy stuff all the time and I, you know, I like to, I like to get little things and try little things. Um, one of the things that I tried, um, on my own was on it stuff. And once I tried the on it stuff, um, at the time I was a big advocate of garden of life. Garden of Life had products that I thought were very, very good. Um, my buddy Westy introduced me to that product. Westy's a really competitive paddleboarder, and uh, and I, I got along really good with it. I digested very good with it. I worked out really good with it. I grew. I was lean and I grew a lot. Um, and then I switched to a different product, um, mainly, you know, mainly for. I guess business reasons is what it cha- what it came down to is someone wanted me to represent that product and you know wanted really wanted to to pay me to endorse the product but you know the reality was after I tried a little while I didn't get along with it so I went back to um you know I tried some stuff on my own one of the things that I tried was was the on it stuff and one of the things that stand out to me with any type of supplement um, is, you know, the protein powders, when they're synthetic, they don't digest. And, um, you know, you can, you can smell it when it doesn't smell real. It's not real. (laughs) And, um, you know, and then just, you know, not feeling like you're digesting it well. And with, um, the hemp protein, I digested it really easy. Um, and you know, and, and I didn't feel like it was going to waste, you know, a lot of times you can tell by your urine color and things like that, what's going to waste. Um, so I tried the hemp protein first, then I tried, um, shroom text the very first time I went out and was with Joe. Um, we had some shroom text and I really, really liked those, um, because I didn't have any crash or like jitters. Uh, they were just good. And I felt like I had a better workout. And then the alpha brain's been like totally different. And like for me right now, I've got, you know, I drink a gallon of water when I wake up. First thing I drink is a cup of coffee. But then I'll drink a gallon of water and I'll put, um, this morning I've got strawberry MCT oil, um, emulsified MCT oil in here, like two tablespoons. And then I've got, um, then I've got the uh, alpha brain in there and I'm a, advocate of the peach flavor so i've got that um but when i'm on my hunt last year in alberta my my supplementation is 
Um, the TPC packs that Onnit has, the TPC packs are awesome because there's a daytime and a nighttime. That's it. It's easy to think about. So when I go on a hunt, I actually buy two for the month of September. Um, they just they just came in. I, I unpacked them last week. Um, so I'm going to be hunting pretty much solid from like August 25th um, in Alberta all the way until October. So I've got I've got a 30 day. I've got two 15 day boxes of TPC packs. Each one of my hunts, I'll take seven mornings, seven nights with me. I also take um, I take three Alpha Brains uh, sachets, the peach flavor, for each day that I'm hunting. So um, I'll always take three full water bottles with me on a full day hunt. So I'll have um, an Alpha Brain for each time that I hydrate and. Uh, and I, I think that's important. Then I get two, uh, I guess I just ate it, but I get two of the Omega bars that they have. I'm a peanut butter chocolate fan. And um, I'll have two of those, and then I'll have um, two of the Tonka beef jerky uh, sticks. And that's all that that's all I consume until I eat in the evening. Um and sometimes, depending on, you know, if I'm not getting back till 11 at night, sometimes I don't even eat in the evening. But normally, once something hits the ground, um, I definitely make it a point to consume every night. Like, uh, I think two years ago, today I posted a picture of a muley that I shot. We consumed that whole muley um, on a eight-day hunt, me, Jeremy, and, and uh, Dusty. We just we just destroyed that thing. I mean, it was just like steak night every night. Um, fire up the fire up the campfire steaks. That's what we ate. Uh, but during the day and I can post a picture, it was, you know, I hydrate, I hydrate mid morning, noon, mid afternoon. I hydrate always. Um, that's one thing that I do. I drink a lot. I probably drink, um, I probably drink maybe at least a gallon to two gallons, sometimes two gallons of fluid a day. Um, so, I mean, like this, you know, Sharon always, she won't share any, like she won't share a drink with me because like when I take a drink of something, it's, you know, it's like a Capri Sun is just like me closing my hand. Remember those things? Um that's just me closing my hand. I could I could knock out a whole box of Capri Suns in probably a minute. And this, like if I wasn't talking on this podcast, this one liter of uh, Alpha Brain and, and MCT oil would be gone in one, probably one or two big chugs. Um, so I, I definitely, you know, I definitely always consume the water. Tonka bars are awesome. And normally I'll have one of those pieces of um, food or sometimes two each time I sit down to hydrate. So if I hydrate mid-morning, you know, nine in the morning, if it gets a little slow, I'll have, you know, I'll kind of take a, have a whole bottle of water and have that bar. Sometimes I'll eat a bar on the way out in the first, in the, the first part of the morning. Uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are pretty staple for me too, but 
last year in Alberta, I did it on purpose. I wanted to see if I could actually just like go the whole time on on it stuff, and I did. And I, you know, I felt really good. I mean, I was elk hunting. I think I think I covered right at about right at about eighty six miles is what my GPS said I covered um, on foot throughout that time, which, you know, if you're not an elk hunter, hopefully that doesn't scare you. You know, it's, you're pretty much just going, you're on a march. Uh, you just go for it. And, you know, that's part of being successful too, is being able to get out and do that. And, you know, falling back to this mental and physical part. Uh, if all you ever do is train in the evening or all you ever do is shoot at night, then what happens when when it cracks daylight and you see a you see a bull exiting the back end of a field and you gotta all of a sudden kick it in gear in that morning air and bust your ass for three quarters or a mile and then be able to pull back and make that fifty yard shot? Can you do that? Most people they haven't prepared for that, so it becomes down to luck. I remember. Um, I was on an elk hunt in Montana and because I was, you know, because I was in elk every, you know, almost every time and the farmer, um, that was letting me trespass through his land, he actually had a friend there hunting with him and he asked, he said, um, and this was, this was kind of one of my ways to get on, um, for me to access the land that I needed to get to, it was, 30 40 miles closer by crossing one mile or two miles of this private rancher's farm and he was notoriously did not let people do that so um i ended up i ended up becoming at least friends good enough friends with him to where he'd let me do it and the reason he didn't want me to do it is because he didn't want there he didn't want the elk to be bumped completely off the back end of that property or out of that public ground and go far 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 into the back end of the of the public hunting so he wanted you know he didn't want to bump the herd and he you know he talked to me long enough to know um that i wasn't going to hunt that way which i didn't and once i got my bull i actually made the agreement that i'd take his friend out for the remaining days that i was there uh for hunting every morning and sure enough, on the second morning, the first morning, the guy missed a bull. The second morning, we went back out and had a herd bull. I glassed a herd bull and was saw where he was going and made um, a really good guess at where the he was going to take the whole herd uh, up into the pines. So, you know, we just boogied and ended up getting right on the peak of this crest and I look over the top and I can see this rack and it is a freaking giant bull. I mean, <laughs> probably it would have definitely been the biggest one I ever shot at. And this guy, uh, was a smoker and he was struggling big time. So when he pulled back, uh, he was breathing so hard that he was tra- having a hard time finding his peep and everything. So I said, Hey buddy, I go let down, let down. And he let down. I said, I go, I go, just get your breath 
you know, let's go through this. I said, mate, you got to make a good shot, dude. You got to make a good shot. And um, he pulled back again. And he, I mean, his pin was just back and forth, back and forth all over the place. And I said, uh, I ranged the bull and it was 59 yards. And I go, what do you, I go, what do you have a pin for? And he's like, he goes, I, I can shoot 60. And I go, well, you only have four pins. I'm like, what's your, what, what are you sighted in for? And he said, well, I, I'm sighted into 50. But he said, um, he goes, I can shoot 60. And I said, all right, let down real quick. And he let down. I said, I go, dude, you know, we're standing behind this pine tree. This bull's bugling, looking away. And he, the bull's doing his thing. He's moving around a little bit and stuff, but he's not moving very far. But this guy was breathing. I mean, like, you know, I was thinking, is this guy going to kick the bucket on the hill? Like, you know, and I wasn't pushing him that hard. I was I was pretty much talking to him about this calmly with breath. And this guy pulls the bow back again, and I, and I... Uh, He's like, well, range him, range him. And he pulls back again, and he's like trying to hold on the bull. And I mean, his pin, his bow is just going all over the place. And I looked at his pins, and on his pins, like his his gap between his like 40 and 50 was like smaller than his gap between his 30 and 40, which tells me that 50 pin is not <laughs> freaking right. Um, so he ended up saying, how far is he? And... This is might have been a dick thing to do, but I was the guide, so I guess I had the you know I technically I was the guide. I wasn't I wasn't uh, actually the guide, but um, I told him it was sixty eight, and he goes, "It's sixty eight and I go, "Yeah," because he couldn't. This is the other thing. He was so nervous that he said, "You need to range it for me," because he was like all over the place. And I kind of thought, you know, that bull could could just as easily, we were behind one big pine tree. He had no idea we were there. That bull could have just as easily came up and went on either side of us. We could have had a great close shot. But I told him it was 68 because in my mind, I knew the guy was totally not prepared. And at that point in time, um, one, the farmer that owned the land uh, that we crossed in order to get up into this. This was actually, you know, up in, up in one of the national parks. Um, he, I knew he didn't want pressure because those elk would come down into his pivots at night. So I'm sitting here thinking this guy is going to, he's going to wound this, this elk. And then we're going to be up here chasing elk. Uh, we're going to be chasing elk all over this freaking mountain, wounded elk, uh, which is a, a losing battle. Um, so I just wasn't re- willing to roll the dice. You know, if he would have been up there and done it, he could have. But the reality was this dude knew he had a great elk tag. He knew, I mean, he was from that area. So he knew where the elk goes. He knew that he was going to have to go there. So there was zero preparation, and 
Um, you know, it'd been one thing if the guy was like fit and mentally freaking, you know, tough and, uh, would have been able to get up there and would have been able to do his due diligence and be prepared for the hunt. And then got up there and said, dude, I don't like, I only shoot to 40, my 50 yard pin. I just kind of guessed where it was because I could have probably taken my Allen wrench out of this, out of my hip pocket and adjusted his pin to where I knew the 50 would have to be. If I could see a 20, 30 and a 30, 40 gap, I bet I could put the 50 pin right where it needed to be. But, um, that's the difference. You got to have, you got to have a hundred percent of your game intact. And, you know, that hundred percent can't be all comprised of one thing, you know, um, you know, a UFC fighter, if all they can do is one thing, uh, well, they're not a UFC fighter. They're going to, they're going to, you know, they're not, they're not ultimate. They're just a fighter. They're just in the FC. Um, because you have to have these, you have to recognize what your weaknesses are and then hone those in. There's a lot of people here, um, kind of on my Instagram right now talking about different things, people working. It's good that they're working out either going to work right now. I mean, that's a commitment. Um, it's early or the fact that they're working out right now, um, at this time, it's a big, big deal. And it's definitely going to help you. There's some people saying it's my first elk hunt, you know, what advice and advice is certainly going to be, um, you know, focus on, Focus on your weak points and be true to yourself because the weak points, when you're on a hunt, especially when you're on a backcountry hunt, um, your weaknesses are going to reveal themselves and sometimes they get pretty damn ugly. I've often said, uh, if I make a decision to share a hunting camp with someone, um, I'm pretty much making a decision, a personal decision that um, either I'm going to either I'm going to, you know, I'm okay with liking that person for life or hating that person for life. Because when you're, um, when you're making that commitment to be somewhere with someone, when it's going to get tough and their true colors are going to be revealed, then you're rolling the dice on whether or not you're going to, um, whether or not you're going to be able to, to tolerate that person. Sometimes people can't tolerate themselves. They end up just quitting and leaving, I've been in a lot of hunting camps where by the third and fourth morning, people just don't get up. You know, they spend those first nights staying up, partying too long, not getting their sleep. And all of a sudden they start missing those hunts. And when you're missing those hunts, uh, you're missing opportunity. That's the reality. If you want more success, you got to be out there. Uh, but I will say with the supplements, I've loved the on it stuff. Those are my staple products that I talked about. And I do know that <coughs> you can, you can go to, um, on it and there, I know they gave me a promo code at one time. Um, I thought it was knock on. I think the promo code was knock on. Maybe it was knock on archery. Um, but I think it was knock on. Uh, but yeah, if you enter in that promo code, you'll actually get a discount if you're part of the Knock On Nation. They did that for us, which is cool. I need to do a better job promoting it. That's my bad, but you can definitely uh, get it there. And make sure, you know, a lot of people are asking if they're gluten-free. A lot of the different, I've been asked uh, by Griba if it's 
safe for testing and all that stuff. And they're very, very transparent. That's what's awesome about a company when you know they're legit is they're transparent and um, you can see everything about their products. And I do think um, I do think a lot of their products are gluten-free, but I guess I'm not for sure about that. That's the only downside to a Yeti is uh, if you bang this on something, like, so help you, if you ever drop your Yeti off a ladder stand, uh, that could possibly be the loudest thing that, that you could hear in the timber is a empty uh, Yeti jug with the lid off to where it really rings like a bell. Uh going down about 20 feet of climbing sticks that would be that would be so loud that'd be my that would actually be my worst nightmare i might have a nightmare about that now that i think about it i'm gonna be like watching this giant seven-year-old whitetail just slithering through the woods like a like a freaking some kind of a never seen uh creature from a movie He's going to be just so smart and slow and still, and I'm going to just be in the moment of getting ready to launch an arrow at this thing, and all of a sudden I'm going to accidentally bump my Yeti container off my tree stand seat and hear that sound. That's going to be a nightmare. Hopefully I haven't set myself up for that, but um, I might have. I just talked about it, so now I'm going to end up visualizing enough to where it ends up happening. But... Uh, let me jump into some of these questions here quick. Um, I've got to, I've actually got to hit the road, start driving here in about an hour, so I don't have a lot of time. Uh, first question is from BIP2336. He's saying, is it necessary to join an association like the NFA or IBO or et cetera to become a target archery uh, archer? If you're going to compete, you, uh, well, at least when I competed, you had to be members of the organization. That's only wise. Um, especially in the pro class, um, you know, you definitely want to do that. And I think once you become a pro and you're active in those, um, I think you should, one thing that I try to do, um, just as a hunter, as a way to give back is I had to take a drink. My mouth's getting dry. One thing I do is. I try to become a life member of some type of a organization, whether it's a one of these organizations or like I did um, a life membership to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Um, forget what else I've done. I've done several. Did a life membership to the Iowa Bow Hunters uh, the year before this one. I always try to do a life membership every year to one of these organizations um like for the asa i don't know about the ibo i've actually got a bunch of uh scorecards here on my i've got a bunch of like scorecards and national uh national record certificates and uh stuff like this from shoots or like records that i had shot i'm going through them because i'm actually um really trying to build a cool profile, my profile for the, um, for the knock on nation page or, you know, the knock on nation new website. Uh, 
best thing about doing a podcast, no one's here to ask me when that's going to be done. So, but if it does ever get done, um, I've got that page that's really, really cool uh, because I'm actually going in and I'm going back um, into my journal and I've got an old journal that I've kept a lot of notes in over the years. Um, You know, I've got one here and then I've got a, uh, I used to carry a little memo book um, in my, you know, inside of my, uh, my, stool back in the day I carried my stool that little flip out stool everywhere um and I would just write down different you know I'd write down different things that I did uh write down things I felt about certain rounds tried to recollect back to them and um I've loaded all those so for example like you know this card that I have here the only reason you know I kind of got sidetracked from the do you need to be a member Um, like with this IBO card, I was looking at it because I was trying to see what my member number actually was, um, because I, I, you know, I am a member, I have been a member. Um, and you know, I, well, with this scorecard, I went in and I actually talked about everything that I, that I did leading up to that round. And then also how that round went. Um, and kind of just almost, it's almost like miniature stories. So that's the one thing that I really like about the, the page, um, with the new profile is that it actually lets you, um, make notes on your shooting things and you can actually check the box whether or not, um, you know, if it was in competition, the system will automatically identify your highest rounds and it'll take your highest rounds and, um, you know, show them as, you know, as your personal best. Um, so all those records, you know, you can, you can see them, you can look at them. And for mine, you can actually read a story. It's like a short story of how that day went, how that came to be, etc. Um, which is pretty cool. But like with the ASA, my ASA number is 697. Um, so, I mean, there wasn't that many people doing it back then. Uh, it was, it was pretty small number of people. Uh, and obviously it's grown huge, but supporting those people with the memberships are pretty important. And with a lot of them, you get subscriptions to their official magazine. So like the IBO, their official magazine is, um, archery world, um, wait, bow hunting world, bow hunting world magazine. So you get a subscription to that, so you can kind of follow along with how the year's gone, and you get a cool little hunt magazine too. Um, the ASA's I think is Whitetail Journal, uh, is their official magazine. So there's different publications, but yeah, I think it's all relative. And I would encourage you to become a member if nothing else, because then you can get their newsletters and things, and try to stay on top of really what's going on uh, with the organization and new rule changes. Uh, I think all that's essential, but definitely take a look at, you know, if it's something that you've done for a while, definitely take a look at, uh, the benefits to life membership versus, you know, yearly membership stuff. Uh, next question here is, uh, from paradox.archery. Hey John, thanks for putting out the archery info. Move from Canada to Portugal. Perhaps you can discuss sight picture through your scope. I struggle with having a clear target or a clear pin. 
what's your advice? So um, I assume uh, just because, um, you know, I, I assume when you're talking about scope, the word scope, you're not, you're really meaning like target archery where you have a lens. So for my lens, technic, usually indoors, I'll shoot about a six power maximum. There's been years where I've shot a little bit more, but when you start to go higher and higher in your magnification, your clarity is going to really start to dissipate um, clarity between the two. I like to think of it um, just like a very good camera lens. So on a camera, a good camera lens, um, you know, is going to have a bigger bell, a very clear picture through it, but it's also going to have um, a low f-stop ability. So um, it's going to have a lot more detail. You're going to have a way cooler picture, but unless you've um, moved that f-stop up as high as you can, uh, which pretty much takes takes away from what that lens was built for, um, your depth of field is very short. So a lot of pictures with really good photographers, you'll notice that their the crispness of the picture is amazing, but you'll also know that it quickly fades out of focus from the detail. So it really draws the eye to the detail. So the same is true with your scope. You're trying to magnify your image. And the problem is when you magnify it too much, your depth of field or your ability to have everything totally in focus starts to go away. So either your your pin or your your aiming dot will look out of focus or your target will look out of focus uh, depending on how you, you set up. Now, if you shoot a clarifier in your peep, which is a small lens that's actually within the peep, it can actually clear the the target up um, to where your target is in focus, um, crystal clear focus, because that's the one problem. The more you magnify the target, you can see more of the bullseye. So like, for example, if I put like a 0.8 diopter lens in my uh, 29 millimeter Sherlock scope, you know, I'm only looking at half of the red ring and the and the the gold ring um, on a Vegas face. My pin, I can literally see my you know the ten ring so big I can see my pin within that ten ring, um, or pretty much within the X. However, the the image itself is not very clear. I can see a blurred out black line where the 10 would be or where the X would be, but I'm not looking at that crystal clear. Um, and the higher you go in lens power, the blurrier that's going to be until you start to do two things. One, shoot a clarifier in your peep, which I just talked about, or two, reduce the size of the peep uh, hole. So the smaller the peep hole, the more you can clear up that image. So for example, I shoot a micro peep. Um, when I shoot outdoors, I shoot a micro peep uh, with a 0.55 or a 0.7 diopter uh, Sherlock lens, which is a uh, Swarovski lens, Swarovski crystal uh, glass, and it's amazingly clear. Um, you know, it's 
and I'm able to see both with pretty good clarity. Now, if I start to reduce uh, that power in the lens, so like for sure my 0.55 diopter is crystal clear, uh, both the pin and the target crystal clear. Uh, you know, it's it's really really nice. Plus, um, you know, you can start to shoot a bigger peep hole and the image still stays clear. Now, another factor is the quality of your lens. Lens qualities, you know, they charge different prices for lenses for a very important reason because uh, shitty lens quality is is kind of a, a place where if you're cutting that corner, then you're you're not going to have great clarity in both spots, and most likely you're going to make up for the quality of the lens by having to buy a clarifier. Uh, in your peep as well, which clarifiers in your peep are not something I particularly like. I know some hunters that really start to get to the point where they can't even really see clear their pins on the, you know, on just their standard hunting site. So, um, you know, for something like that, if you can't see those pins clear, um, they make kind of a, a simple, uh, it's called a verifier, uh, especially archery products makes it and it's uh it does clear up that but it doesn't you know it doesn't overly clear it plus it's in a larger size so you can somewhat clean it the problem with clarifiers and peeps is you just it's impossible to clean the dang things and you know you go out and you're in the middle of a tournament or something and you know one drip of sweat falls off your nose onto the top of your peep site next thing you know it's like you're looking through a fishbowl or if uh someone takes their shirt and pulls it up and rubs their face and their belly button lint comes flying out like the feather in um in a forest gump movie and then floats around and lands in your peep site well that little piece of lint, you're not going to be able to see shit in there. And that's the problem with the clarifier. I've had too many people where they're in a tournament and all of a sudden a mosquito flies in there and they can't get it out or a gnat or one piece of sweat or it starts raining and it just gets to be a pain in the butt. So that's why I don't shoot them. I would prefer to shoot a lower power lens that gives you the ability to... Um, to ha still have a clear target and still be able to have clear vision on your pins. Uh, to clarify the target, just again reduce, uh, just reduce the size of uh, of the peep, and you'll you'll clear it up pretty fast. So that's uh, that's that. Uh, let's see here. Next question is going to be. Uh, Arrow weight versus poundage. This is from um, Bam B A M A E S A U seventy nine Bamasau, I guess. Um, so, air, when it comes to arrow weight, this is what I do. I really just depending on the bow that I'm shooting, just depending on the speed of the bow, and sometimes, sometimes depending on the animal. I will make a decision um, 
whether or not I want to um, shoot a really heavy arrow or if I just want to find as heavy of an arrow as I can to keep my speed around that 275 to 280, somewhere in there, 285. Um, So I'll just change my weight. Right now, I'm shooting, like for example, um, an arrow like an Axis or an FMJ. You have the decision on whether you shoot it with a standard insert or brass inserts. Um, In my case, I can normally make the decision whether... I want to shoot it in a 300 spine or a 260 spine. Um, the 260 spine would instantly make it heavier or make a heavier arrow. Um, or, uh, like for example, with this 6mm uh, axis that I'm shooting right now, Easton axis 6mm, I'm shooting the Under Armour edition. Um, for that, I can actually use an HP brass insert and shoot up to 75 grains extra brass in there. So what I'll do is I'll start out with it first at 50 because that's where I like, and I'll see what kind of speed I'm getting. If the arrow is pretty fast still, then at that point, as long as I feel like the spine can take it, um, I would remove that insert and then go ahead and put a 75 grain insert in there and see how that would work. Um, So, Right now, I think I'm shooting, I forget, my arrow's over, might be over six, but I think it's over five. Maybe it's over six. I can't even remember now. It's like terrible. I'm building so many arrows for other people that I forget what mine are. But um, anyway, I've just, over the years, I've increased my arrow weight in order to uh, just really be in that speed that I like. And I like that speed because my pin gaps are decent. Um, One thing that is important to me about pin gaps is if your pins start to get so big to where like the distance between like your 30 and 40 is like bigger than the height of your animal. So in other words, if you pull your bow back and you're like, I don't know if this thing is 30 yards or four, I don't know if it's 35 yards or 45 yards. If you pull back and your pin gaps are so wide that you're not able to get both of those pins um, on that animal, then that's it's kind of you're almost guessing too much at that point. So where I'm going with that is when I had to shoot my bow with my mouth um, after my shoulder surgery, I actually started with a bow that I think was 40 pounds and I shot at that time I shot an arrow that was I couldn't quite get to 280 um, but I shot a lighter arrow and I shot a lighter arrow just because I needed some speed so my pin gaps weren't so wide Um, and I started with like an Easton hex because it was so light and I shot it with a with one of the micro uh, one of the speed inserts Um, it was, it was light. It was a very light arrow, but I also shot it with a very good cutting broadhead. Um, I didn't shoot it with an expandable shot it with a muzzy trocar. Um, then I moved up to 50 pounds. And once I went up to 50 pounds, I was able to then put the 50 grain brass in that same hex. 
Um, and then when I moved up to, let's see, I went 30, then I went to 40. Um, then once I hit 40, I was just every week or two weeks, I'd add one turn to the, to my tiller bolts until I was able to be, I think I shot my, my bear in the mid fifties, um, with my teeth and that arrow was, um, you know, I think the, I think the arrow that I shot my bear with had like 75 grains of brass in. So as I increased in power and as my bow increased in speed, I increased arrow weight um, at the, you know, at an equal rate so that my speed would be where I want it to. I just, I feel like from all the testing that I've done over the years, speed is very relative to your ability to get, um, to be able to try a lot of different combinations of products and still have them work well. Um, you know, if you're, um, what I mean by that is, I'll go out and some days I may shoot one arrow. The next day I may shoot the same arrow with a different fletch. The next day someone might just send me a random pack of broadheads and say, can you tell us how well these are actually shooting for you? We really value your opinion. Um, So I need something that just works with a lot of things. And what I found is that 280 number... um, with an arrow that has the right spine for you, uh, regardless of how heavy it is, it just, it's more accurate. Um, so don't get too hung up on weight. If you're in a situation where you know that you have a shot that's at a set distance all the time, you know, you can just set your sight and you just, you know, uh, really want an arrow that'll pass through anything, then you could really go as heavy as you want with an arrow. You'll probably be all right. Um, but if you're doing any type of spot and stock where you're actually having to to change game plans continually and be able to probably range and then maybe, maybe there's one or two yards uh, difference in where the animal was between when you've ranged and when you're actually able to make your shot, like if you're shooting too slow, those things start to become important really, really fast. Uh, but if you're going after super, you know, say you're going after a buffalo or a moose or something like that, then I would say for surely, um, you know, take as heavy of an arrow as you can, um, but still be in an area where, you know, you don't want to be just arcing these slow, um, sl- slow like lob shots out there. Um, I actually shot, um, a really big animal in, in Africa and I've chose to never post about it just because, um, well, just because some things, um, some things aren't worth having negativity over, um, especially for the archery community. So, um, you know, I've, I shot something really, really big and I had a ridiculously heavy arrow, uh, that I shot it with. And I remember shooting an arrow that that was that slow. Um, you know, it just almost seemed like, wouldn't I be better off? Like once this thing is this slow, wouldn't I be like, don't, isn't there more opportunity for the animal to change an angle? Um, and an angle change would be worse 
I think, than being able to get the arrow in the right spot faster. Um, so there is a fine line, but you know, honestly, uh, if you're getting over the 285 number for speed, that's a great time to start re- uh, increasing your arrow weight so that you can reduce your speed. And I think you're going to be, I think you're going to be happy with how your bow shoots overall. Um, let's see. M Rouser one, um, is saying I'm going bow hunting for black bear in Maine. Do you recommend bear spray, um, or a firearm in the worst case scenario? Well, if it's a worst case scenario, I, I would way rather have a gun than a can of spray. Um, that would go down. That would be for anything. I've seen some dudes suck up bear spray. Um, so I would say, yeah, this, and actually one time, I don't know if I've ever told this story, but one time Sharon and I were bear hunting together and, uh, actually we, Harry wanted to, to go bear hunting. So Sharon and I went up, we were with Red Willow Outfitters and, uh, while Harry was hunting with Todd, we went out together, me and Sharon, and they had told us that at this one bait site, they said that there's kind of a, there's kind of a, a grumpy sow that comes in. Um, so we went there anyway, and it, it turned out to be kind of a dumb thing because she was, she was a kind of the kind of bear to where if you're, you know, if you're running bear baits, this is what's going to happen one day in some of these spots where people are getting too close to bears because I've been in I've been in baiting situations where that uh, that bear decides it's pissed off and hates you and it just knows you're there and maybe it was because of the fact it wasn't a guy in the tree stand but the bear knew that there was a female there and she she was was pissed and was grabbing the ladder and shaking the ladder around and and you know we had bear spray Sharon wanted bear spray there we had bear spray and I remember I grabbed this bear spray and I just pointed it right down the ladder and like put it like right off this thing's face and gave it a big old blast. And it just like closed its eyes. And then I remember after about six seconds, it just opened its eyes back up and just looked at me again. And I just thought, okay, well, this is stupid. Now all I'm going to do is burn my own eyes when I have to wrestle this thing and like grab its neck or you know try to hold its head off of biting my neck now i'm gonna be you know now i've got pepper spray all in my freaking eyeballs and stuff so i've seen it work i've seen it not work and i think uh my guide my faithful uh mountain guide up in canada bert he's uh he kind of says it best he said it's uh to do a grizzly it's that's just like uh having a little bit of hot sauce out on the table at the mexican restaurant (laughs) a lot of them may like a little spice on their uh on their hot dog they're getting ready to eat so um 
I would say if you have the choice, take the gun, dude, because that bear spray potentially uh, isn't going to do crap. Uh, so let's see, Sal.Bar is asking Mayweather versus Floyd. Man, I'm the wrong person to ask for that. I'm going to be in Alberta. I'm going to be literally sitting by a campfire um, when that fight's going on. And I don't know. That's what's going to, I mean, I would love, I don't know. It's, man, it's tough. I guess depending on how, how long um, Connor is really known about this, truly going to happen. You know whether it was just hype, and then came to the point where they knew they could. There was so much money that they ended up making it happen. But um, who knows if he's been if he's found the right you know boxing guy, he might learn just enough to be able to to get that left hand to connect. Um, if he does connect with that left hand in the right time and on the right spot, I mean it's. It could be a knockout. I've seen that left hand live, and I it absolutely it it makes people's faces rock, and it's very you know, and it people take a beating over a few rounds taking that thing. Um, but Floyd moves incredibly fast, and if that straight left coming in is something that he's had a lot of time to prepare for, then. There's, there's also a really good chance that uh, that he may he may not even get hit by it that much. So, I think, I mean, I think it's totally stupid to not say that Floyd's definitely proved himself as a boxer, um, and he is gonna, he's probably gonna, as long as he doesn't showboat too much, um, you know, I think overall it could. It's probably going to go to Floyd. I think it's either going to Floyd by totally, you know, schooling uh, of just pure boxing, or I think Connor's going to, you know, somehow lure him in to take one of those one of those lefts to the right spot, and it it could be game over at that point. Um, so Derek Miles 33 is asking a question here about shot sequence when hunting. Um, he's saying your normal shot takes 12 to 14 seconds. Um, but what about when the deer gets hung up behind a tree and you're having to wait for a minute at full draw? What do you do? Well, that's a big reason why hunting bows and target bows are so different. Yesterday in the live feed, I talked about this and said how important it was for a hunting bow to be able to have a cam that allows you to hold it at full draw for a longer period of time. And it's a big reason why, even though I could shoot a Hoyt turbo, I'm not going to take a turbo into the field because the cam is aggressive. It, yeah, it has some extra speed, but there's no way that that speed is valuable to me when it comes to being able to pull my bow back on a bedded animal and just hold there for two minutes while I'm waiting for the animal to try to stand up. There's a lot of times where I talked, you know, I talked earlier about, about some of my mule deer stalks or even elk stalks. You don't want to have to pull back. If you have a bow that's aggressive and the only, and you know you can't hold it back very long, you don't want to pull back when the thing is within eye shot of you and the eyes are free to look around. You really, when you're hunting game animals, you need to pull back when that eye is 
is behind something or when its head's down deep in the grass before it comes back up. And sometimes that means drawing back and waiting until they come into your lane. That's important for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, your footing, your posture, getting in the correct position, being waiting there, let them come in. Um, that's that's super important. Um, so making sure that you're doing that is way more important than having a bow that's eight, ten feet a second faster. So, um, yeah, I really like a bow I can control. And that's why even though I can shoot a bow that's, you know, in the 80-pound range or above, um, I still, you know, and granted, I'm, I have a long draw length. So I have, you know, I probably have, you know, 28 plus extra feet a second on the, on the average person anyway, just because of my, my power stroke being longer. Um, but I shoot a weight that I can pull back when I'm in a seated position. If I'm in a blind, which I do hunt blinds or I make ground blinds or I'm hunting off the ground, a lot of times I'll be sitting back. Um, I'll be on my knees, but I'll sit all the way back onto my butt to like lay parallel down to the ground. And I need to be able to pull my bow back from that position and then be able to to come up. If I'm pulling too much weight or if that cam's like trying to take it away from me, man, that, that becomes a problem. You don't want that. So uh, definitely go with what allows you to um, have the best, you know, the best technique and, and be able to let you hold beyond that time period. I think if you're on your trigger and trying to actually make your shot happen and then you're going over that time, at that point you really have to make a decision of do I let off the trigger, you know, let the tension off the trigger and let this bow down, cancel the shot, because that could be a wise choice. Um, you know, if you're holding if you're trying to squeeze your trigger for 14 seconds, there something's wrong that you're probably gonna make a crappy shot. Um Let's see here. Uh, when paper tuning this is from underscore Matt Jones underscore saying when paper tuning, I found that my carbon spider will shoot bullet holes at three yards, but then when I step back to six and nine, the tear becomes more and more tail high. Um, you know, thanks for your podcast. So that could be a couple things. Um, a lot of times, high tears that continue to go high, and probably what will happen is once you go beyond a certain distance again, it'll start to appear low. Um, when an arrow is too weak, it's a couple things. Spring tension, if you have an arrow rest that actually has spring tension, spring tension is too high or the blade angle is too high or if the tail end of that arrow is contacting something, um, you know, it's hitting and the tail end is going more and more and more high. Uh, a weak spine will also do that. Um, if your spine is weak, you know, the arrow paradox as it's coming through and you say it shoots fine up close, but that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, I would like to know where your knock point is sitting, where your arrow rest position is. Like you're, if you're perfectly at 90 degrees and it's going through with the bullet hole, it would be strange that then all of a sudden after it's coming through clean like that, that then it starts to all of a sudden have a really crazy tail high. Um, sometimes people, because they're just trying to get that bullet hole up close when they pull back and their arrow is like really, you know, the knock point really high or knock point really low. Um, 
you can get a bullet hole at one distance, but then as you you know go further and further away, that bullet hole is going to start to start to just be a more and more prominent tear. So in that case, it pretty much tells me that your knock position um, on your arrow rest is actually not in that good of a position. Um, so you're almost shooting that tail through high. The only difference is you've kind of adjusted your arrow rest enough to where maybe it shows you that it's okay really close, but then once you start to back up, it doesn't. Now, I don't spend a lot of time on paper tuning, but the reason I don't is because I don't allow myself to adjust an arrow rest very high or very low off of the 90 degree mark. I always start at 90, and if my if my height is good off the get-go, um, then I'm okay. And if I have to make minor adjustments, I can understand that just based off certain models do have different knock travels. Uh, but you don't want to have to, you know, if you're having an eighth inch uh, knock high to get that bullet hole, then that bullet hole is probably uh, a false reading for you. Um, let's see, last question that I'm going to do today is from uh, BJ Creason. And uh, he's saying, what are the most important early season whitetail tactics? So I just wrote um, a really cool article that I actually really like. Um, sometimes I write articles that are more for the editors or more for the magazines as their topics. Um, versus this was one that they kind of told me, well, they wanted my whitetail predictions. This is for Peterson's bow hunting wanted my whitetail predictions for this this coming season uh, because uh, normally, and they really just wanted my rut predictions. I took it one step further. I talked about, um, it'll be a good article, I talked about the three W's that all factor into, the three W's are all important ingredients to being successful as a whitetail hunter. I'm not going to say what they are, um, but it's something that you know I kind of think of in my mind when I strategize and when I look at my calendar. Like right now, I've planned out my my whole hunting fall based on uh, three calendars: the month of September, the month of October, the month of November. And uh, those calendars, what I'm looking at the most is moon cycle, and then within that, um, you know, I'm also looking at uh, two other. Um, Two other important, well, I'm looking at the three W's, but um, I'm trying to factor in like where I'm going to be, the time of year, um, you know, kind of what what type of things I can hunt. All these are important to be to be successful uh, early with whitetails. Homework is is key. Minimal pressure is also key, um, and then third is try to find the one element that they're missing because the three that they need are going to be cover, food, and water. So depending, you know, water can be dynamite if you're not getting rain. Right now here in Iowa, we aren't getting any rain. Um, I've got 100-gallon tanks out, and I actually haven't filled them. Uh, but I could tell you that um, if it stays this dry, I normally, um, you know, we've got some water. I probably should fill them right now, but, um, you know, I've had several years where I can just go out for a month and put fresh water in those tanks about every week, week and a half. Um, 
I use a big bulk tank to fill them. And if I put fresh water in those tanks, then those deer are there. And I've, you know, I've killed bucks over, over water tanks, um, or, you know, water sources that I put in the ground. Um, so doing your homework, cameras are really important, not getting cameras or not getting yourself to where you're applying too much pressure. Pressure is always key with the early season is just really trying to strike fast without pressure. If the wind's not right, don't risk it. You know, normally that early season, you've got, you've got a few days to make things happen. And the way the moon was this September, I can tell you, depending on when your deer season opens, anyone who opens on September 1st this year has a, has a great opportunity for some awesome evening hunts during the first three days of September. Um, I forgot what day the full moon is on, but, um, the last few days of August in the, in the first day or two of September are dynamite for evening hunt movement because the moon is coming up while the sun is still out. So, uh, that's going to be really, really important. Um, obviously deer like green for early season. So alfalfa, clover, uh, is going to be key once acorns hit. And, you know, once deer start to not be visual in that month of September, especially mid-September-ish, um, that's usually an indication that acorns have started hitting it. And if natural acorns are hitting the ground, then at that point, as much as it seems weird, you almost have to fall back um, and fall back into the timber versus out on that green plot because you're just not going to see them out there in the daylight. But, you know, stealth cams tell the tale. Uh, it's a really important tool to have and one that uh, I think uh, everybody should should have to tell you what's coming where but be careful with cameras don't over don't don't get your cards too often don't put too much traffic out there you know don't overdo it and you'll be successful um, when I lived in Wisconsin you know I lived on 10 acres and um, you know I killed a 130 and 140 and a 150 deer uh the three years that i lived on that 10 acres uh you know and i had a i had a one and a half acre food plot and then i had a hundred gallon water tank at the top of my at the top of the hill i had a hundred gallon water tank and down um at the bottom of my hill i had you know an acre and a half or so of red clover and it's because i knew in my area once crops came down, those deer that were in my area would really spread out and I wouldn't, you know, I just didn't feel like I was in a good late season or rut type spot. I was in a great spot for early season. So I had, you know, very good clover, great red clover with alfalfa. You know, I made sure I cut it, made sure I had it fertilized all the time. It was really healthy. And I gave them really good uh, early season stuff. And I did supplement too with, um, with a protein pellet, um, which is, you know, which is important too, because deer are looking to grow right now. They're, they're trying to stack that stuff on. So if you give them those elements, you have some bedding for them, you have their water and you have their food, then you've got the three elements that you need to make a successful hunt. So with that, um, my, my Yeti's about empty. Uh, 
we're approaching two hours here on the podcast and I have to get going. Um, I've got some stuff to do, got some product videos to do, um, actually doing some product, um, some product review videos on some products from HME. It's hunting made easy. Um, these are cool, cool little products. Um, they've got some that, um, are like no brainer stuff. They've got like a bow rack for your backyard, um, little arrow holders you can stick in the ground. Um, so like even being able to go, um, even be able to just go to a random place and stick this little stand in the ground. You can hang, hang your bow on it or slide your arrows in the little thing. Uh, super, super easy. You just have to put it together. Uh, pretty much nuts and bolts. Comes in small packaging. They've got a cool step in the ground uh, camera holder. Um, they've got small thing. They've got like tree saws, limb reflectors. Uh, really good like field dressing glove kits just all kinds of I mean it's crazy amount of stuff they have but it's just called hunting made easy and it was kind of owned by a little guy that was just a little inventor dude crafty guy Um, and now it got bought up by GSM outdoors so now that GSM has it it's uh, they're trying to get more people to see all the things that this guy had and they're trying to bring in uh the the inventory numbers to where the price is really low as well so um yeah i'm gonna do some stuff for them and then also gonna film some stuff um with this garland animal wellness uh product and they do have uh just so you know garland does have as well um they've got a promo code right now i think it's knock on so if you go to garland g-a-r-l-a-n-d animal wellness on instagram you'll be able to see the company uh and take a look and then if you go back or actually i posted it on my page too but if you go back a few days um the new website launched uh which is awesome and they pretty much show the two things that are like the no-brainers are the Artemix liquid um, product and the Artemix mineral. Both of these are crazy good. Um, if, you're, if your whitetail puts its tongue, if it like touches its tongue on the mineral, um, and it's like a mineral powder, if you like powder, touch its tongue on the powder. If it does that, it has everything that it needs for one full day to have complete nourishment um according to you know what's what's proven by some of the top uh whitetail scientists there are um and the artemix liquid is like almost like a molasses liquid version of that that is comes in a bag it's like a it's like a um like a plastic bag almost like a almost like a a, a big one gallon might be bigger than a gallon might be five gallons i can't remember but it's almost like a giant version of a um that power gel like the power bar gel stuff energy gel it's like a big bag like that with a twist cap and you can so you can take it in your backpack and then you can pour um you can take several of them in a pack for that matter and you can pour them on stumps 
And then, you know, a lot of times on old dead stumps is a great place to pour this because the ground's porous and it gets into the roots. And the deer will actually just kind of chew on the on that old wood and they'll actually just paw through the dirt. And same thing, uh, you know, one, one lick a day and they're pretty much hitting um, what they need as a minimum for each day um, already. So the prices are really good. And yeah, promo code is knock on uh, n-o-c-k-o-n and it's 15 percent off and i think they have free shipping for like two or more bags but just so that everyone knows um you know when i talk about this i'm not talking about like um you know i'm not i'm not talking i'm trying to look up here the price is um really not what you would expect when you're looking at like a really high end mineral um or a uh high end you know pour over like that but uh let's see I'm just going to look up the price sorry if you're holding on and you're waiting but um yeah just go to garlandanimalwellness.com and you'll be able to see it on there um but Artemix is the liquid is definitely, let's see here. Um, yeah, and you can also mix the liquid in with corn too. So if you want your animals to guarantee that they're getting that full daily dose or better, um, especially now when stuff's really growing, you can actually mix this in with a full bucket of corn or something, kind of mix it in there and then pour it out. And, you know, they'll get, they'll consume it even by eating the corn because it'll stick to it. And it's like a molasses. And, um, yeah, so let's see. You get free shipping when you buy three bags, um, which is good. And the, the bags are only 20 bucks. So you get 15% off that. So more or less. Yeah, you're going to get, otherwise, if you buy two bags, it's seven bucks. So you practically get free shipping by buying two of the liquids. So check that out. It's good stuff. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm actually just really having a good time talking to all the scientists. I need to get some of these whitetail experts on here to talk about this. Uh, it's incredible. And the new pellet, um, the new pellet that's going to have, uh, the, you know, this, this revolutionary new product that's going to prevent the biting insects is going to be huge. And I'm sure I'll get pressed on to talk about that, but sorry, everyone appreciate it. Uh, we'll talk at you later. Knock on everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock on lifestyle clothing, knockonarchery.com. <laughs>